last week saw the start of our series on the book of John um, called Finding Jesus. And um, this is all about the book of John. And in particular, we're looking at four specific encounters that John writes about in, um, in which people are invited to come and see Jesus. Hence, Finding Jesus. Um, through their encounter with Jesus, they believe in him. And the belief that John talks about isn't just having a faith um, in a non-committal, vague sense. The word he uses is a verb. It's participation. It's an active trust in Jesus. John shows us that for these people, and perhaps for us, all it takes for full-blown trust in Jesus is an encounter with him. One of these people who come and see Jesus is called Nicodemus. And the chat that takes place between these two is a radically surprising encounter between Jesus and religion. So let's go to the passage. If you want to turn to it in your Bibles, we're going to keep referring back to this all the way throughout, so that might be useful to have it open. Um, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, and said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus then goes on to say some of the most quoted words from the entirety of Scripture. And we could easily carry on reading and examine the rest of this chapter for weeks on end, because it's so rich. But I believe what happens before all of that is really key. So we're going to focus on that fascinating conversation that we've just read, that encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. Let's first note a few things about what we're dealing with. Number one, Pharisees were the religious and cultural elite of Jesus' time. They were the lawmakers. They were put in charge of the Jewish nation, even while everyone was under the occupation of Rome. Number two, Jesus was not a Pharisee. He was an ex-carpenter from Nazareth, a backwards little town, and he had no credentials, 
No, no power. And he was an alid and an and he was an alleged heretic who hung out with the most unsavoury of characters. Number three, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was a really good one. He was at the top of his game, and people saw him as one of the most holy and most educated in the nation. Among the big dogs, he was the biggest. So, set the scene. It's a blustery night on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Compared to the busyness of that day, in a city during a huge nationwide festival, it's pretty dead. A few people are milling about, getting ready and rested for the journey from the city tomorrow. And Jesus, this unassuming, bearded guy, is chatting to his mates. Mates, having had a busy day chasing merchants from the temple with a whip he made himself. Just, just your average day. He's been in the public eye almost all day. Everyone's a bit tired, everyone's a bit grubby from the city dust, and everyone's ready to settle down for the night. When from the shadows emerges this guy in clean, gleaming robes, it's a bit like if you imagine you're taking the bins out one night and you suddenly see David Beckham walking down the street towards you. He's strutting towards you in all his well-groomed, world-famous glory, and you're stood there in your slippers. It just doesn't fit. He doesn't fit in this context. The way he lives and the way he even just looks is completely alien to where you are. And it's the same with Nicodemus. It seems totally random to find him, of all people, here. When he could have approached Jesus very easily on his own turf, he could have met him in the temple. That's where Nicodemus was, was you know, he was like the main event. Why, why, is, why is he, the one who's got it all together, coming up to Jesus, this outsider? Nicodemus is one of those people who's, who knows what he's doing in life. A rare species. <laughs> And why, why he's going up to Jesus right now is a total mystery. It's a curious incident of God in the night time. Apologies for that. I'm not very good at photoshopping. <laughs> I wasn't hiding in shame just then. So it's a complete mystery. Or is it? So Nicodemus is a big deal. And he doesn't usually hang out with outsiders and radicals. So what? Surely that doesn't make him a bad person. And I don't think we can reject him out of hand just because he's more polished than Jesus and his friends. Like the other Pharisees, Nicodemus had long-held beliefs. That's admirable, isn't it? He must be pretty open-minded anyway to be going anywhere near Jesus. So I guess that's something to be applauded. And Nicodemus got to the top of his game by being a good guy by reading his Torah every day, by knowing it inside out, and by living a good moral life. Is that religious? On the surface, is religious actually a bad thing? Or is it not? Let's unpack what we really mean by religious. Go back to the start, and what you talked about at your tables, bring that to mind. For some of you, you think along the same lines as me, or my friend the taxi driver. Um, um, for some, it's um, just a useful term of describing different sets of beliefs. Um, but today, we're looking more at the attitude of religiousness. 
Instead, we're looking at how religious is a way of holding beliefs. Religious is a way of holding beliefs. This brings us back to the whole theme of encounter in the book of John. You see, the way John talks about belief is a belief in Jesus that comes from meeting him. It's active and it's personal and we can't possess it. We have to live it out. We have to throw everything in with it. It demands participation because it stems from encounter. So if religious is a way of holding our beliefs, that's a different picture. Religious might carry or hold beliefs well. It might even carry beliefs nobly or impressively. But the problem is that the Jesus encounter kind of belief wasn't built to be carried around. Whether it's on a platter or in your back pocket. Religious is a way of holding beliefs, and what's more, a way of holding them at arm's length. It's Nicodemus saying, I know you're from God, when Jesus says, I am God. It's when we hold beliefs about Jesus, rather than simply believing in him. And we all fall into this. If this is what religiousness is, then we're all culprits. Religiousness isn't an irrelevant or distant issue for me or for you or for G2 any longer because religiousness is obviously far more dangerous and more subtle than being a bit pious or a bit high church. It's actually often the way we find ourselves living. And as I have looked ever closer at Nicodemus, I've seen far more of myself in him than I'd like to admit. Oscar Wilde said, religion is a fashionable substitute for belief. And I think he might be right. Certainly, certainly it is for me. When believing in Jesus, trusting in him wholeheartedly, gets a bit too uncomfortable or a bit too close to the bone or a bit boring, that's when we, and it's not bringing about the results that we want, we can easily begin to substitute, just start to edge out that risk-taking all-out trust with something which is more instantly gratifying. Something which is like a checklist, just to make sure that we're doing all the right things. Holding our beliefs so the world can't challenge us or offend us about them. We end up being more bothered about the way that we're holding our beliefs and how other people might see that than actually believing in Jesus for who he is, no matter what the cost. So let's delve into what religious looks like, starting with this story of Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. This is indeed the curious incident of God in the night time. Nicodemus had long-held beliefs. He was seen as one of the most holy men in Jerusalem and beyond. So why doesn't he speak to Jesus in broad daylight? Why not meet him in the city centre? It's more convenient. And John, who's writing all of this down, loves the fact that he goes on about this fact. Every time Nicodemus resurfaces in this book, 
he talks about Nicodemus, the man who met Jesus in the night. Nicodemus, the man who went to meet Jesus in the night. Nicodemus, the man who went... He loves this fact. And I think it's because it's really key to understanding how Nicodemus represents religiousness. It's because Nicodemus is all about appearances. He prioritises the maintenance of the surface level. Nicodemus needs to visit Jesus in the dark because he's got other priorities and other responsibilities to think about and being seen with Jesus would mess everything up that he's worked hard for. It might make other people doubt his authority or his professionalism. You see, religion is like a shell. It has the shape of something meaningful. And it looks dignified and holy and it draws people. But it's just hollow inside. It's missing all the guts and all the heart of believing. And it avoids them because they're messy. Jesus describes this as being like whitewashed tombs. Harsh. Clean and dignified on the outside, but inside, dead, full of bones. If Nicodemus can just keep meeting up with Jesus in the night, he'll get all the benefits of knowing Jesus without the potential drawbacks and all the full-on commitment. It's like an extra polish to the shell. Religious is when true believing only goes skin deep. That's what religious looks like. It's holding beliefs for the world to see, but what's really going on is kept in the dark. I don't know about you, but for me, this is when I limit Jesus to being a fixer of my circumstances, a sprinkler of blessings, when he's a nice life enhancement kind of programme that I can turn to when I need a certain outcome, rather than meeting him in the exposure of daylight as almighty God himself, who wants to transform and bring to, life, bring to light every single part of my life. For me, it's about having an attitude that seeks results rather than relationship. And this is so obvious because I get frustrated. I get frustrated when things don't turn out the way that I pray for them to turn out. When I just miraculously want to be able to write this talk in 20 minutes <laughs> and it doesn't happen, I get frustrated because I'm like, come on, look at me, I'm great. I'm, I'm living for you, I'm doing all this stuff for you. Don't you think you owe me one by now? <laughs> Actually, it's because I want the results. It's because I'm not actually in it to seek the relationship. I limit Jesus to the night. I just go and visit him on the side just as a nice enhancement rather than a transformation. Let's repaint what religious looks like a little bit more. Verse 2. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So he approaches Jesus and he addresses him first as teacher, rabbi. He begins by telling Jesus that he and his Pharisee buddies um, know him. We know you are a teacher who has come from God. Considering that they weren't saying that in public, this is very good schmoozing. Nicodemus is essentially saying, Jesus... Despite our apparent differences, I just wanted to let you know that I get it. I'm in on the God thing too. You see, you're kind of spiritual, I'm kind of spiritual, you've got your thing going on, 
how I've got my thing going on. And I just wanted to clear that with you. I just wanted to let you know that I get it. I know these guys don't, but I do. <laughs> he, tries to, he tries to box Jesus in and say, got you pinned. After all, he knows a lot of stuff about God. He sorted out the meaning of life into a neat and comfortable, livable framework. So therefore, Jesus, this guy, this guy that has suddenly come out of the blue, he needs to fit in with that framework. It's saying that we know it all, we get it, and therefore we limit Jesus to being just what we know and just what we like about him. I'm going to be really honest with you. I've been in two minds while writing this talk. One side of me knows full well that I'm preaching to myself. It's been such a challenge just trying to set this down because I'm, ooh, it does really challenge me. Whilst the other side of me is very indignant about that. You see, in some part of me, deep down, I think I get it. I'm like, Jesus, I get it. Why do you need to tell me about religiousness? I get it. Me and you, we're in on this. <laughs> we're on the same level. And don't get me wrong, there is nothing wrong with assurance. Just look at John the Baptist, if you want amazing assurance of who God is. Just having that knowledge of this is the Lamb of God who's come to take the sin of the world away. That's incredible. But there's a difference between that and self-righteousness. Where I've got this warped idea that I, that I get it. That I'm kind of spiritual and Jesus is kind of spiritual. And I approach Jesus in complacency. Like, oh, I know the picture rather than in honesty and in awe. Instead of believing in Jesus, I hold and I shape my beliefs about him to fit my own neat framework. Maybe it's the same for you. Maybe you just approach Jesus just to check in and just to make sure that he's still there, like an insurance policy, just to check in that he's there for what we need from him, what we want from him. Instead of just approaching him for an honest, open, daylight encounter. But Jesus can't be boxed in. God can't be boxed in. Despite Nicodemus's smooth, quite impressive introduction, um, Jesus has already sussed him out, saying, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. In just a few words, Jesus tells Nicodemus that believing goes more than skin deep. Religiousness tries to box Jesus in and hold him at a distance by claiming that we know the deal. But Jesus smashes it apart by proclaiming not knowledge, but truth. Truly I tell you. Truly I tell you. He says it over and over again. Truly. It's not about what you know. It's about what the truth is. Religiousness tries to box Jesus in and keep him at a distance to prevent him interfering too much in our lives, because they're established. Jesus smashes it apart by pointing to the mystery and the glorious mess of the spirit, which, like the wind, can't be predicted and it can't be pinned down. Religiousness tries to box Jesus in and hold him at a distance by treating him as a life enhancement program undertaken in our spare time, in the night time. Like an evening class. Jesus smashes it apart by reminding us that to believe in him is to be born again. 
To be born again is to be radically renewed from the inside out, not because we deserve it, in the same way that birth can't be earned. We all got born at some point and none of us earned it. None of us worked for it. None of us were good enough for it, but we just did because it's a free gift of life. And it's the same with being born again. It's the same with that promise of renewal, of a whole and full and eternal life. It's free. We can't earn it. The rest of our passage sees Nicodemus ask repeatedly, how can this be? How can this be? He's talking about the wind. He's talking about spirit. He's talking about being born again. It could be quite confusing, I suppose. (laughs) Because Jesus' answers are are jarring to him. It all clashes with Nicodemus' preconceptions about life. He approached Jesus thinking, I get this guy, I know exactly what he's going to say, I know that he's from God, and I'll tell him that I get him, and then we'll have a nice little thing going on in, in, in the night time. And actually Jesus just completely blows that apart. Jesus tells him, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but still you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? How can this be? Nicodemus keeps saying. Jesus knows that Nicodemus is actually delaying with questions. He's looking to get some cosier answers. And the small print of this born-again business, what's the guarantee and what's the small print and I need to know the deal before I I buy in. But actually Jesus himself is the answer. There are no other answers. Jesus is saying, I've told you of earthly things. I've laid it out. This is the way it is. And Nicodemus is like, mm, how can this be? <laughs> how can this? And I think we do the same. I certainly do. I certainly do. I consider myself born again and a believer in Jesus. But instead of living in that place of believing and of trust and of renewal, I kind of put it off a little bit. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that time when I was born again? But if I, you know that big risk that I took, but Let's just check. If I just take this next step, what's going to happen then? And God's like, I'm here. I love you. Be born again. Be renewed. This is better. And I'm like, hmm. What's the the catch? (laughs) We expect God to give us more details, more answers, before we actually start living by faith and taking the risks that it involves. It's just all out trust in Jesus. It can't be trust unless we actually trust The conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus trails off there. It just kind of disappears. And Nicodemus doesn't seem to get this answer that he wanted. But Nicodemus resurfaces again in John's Gospel. The second time he appears, in John 7. He speaks out in support of Jesus in front of all his mates, in front of all the people that he grew up with and was in in competition with to learn as much scripture as possible. I don't know what they did. Um, and, he, and he tells the Pharisees to hear Jesus out before they condemn him. And they all go, you from Galilee. <laughs> the third and the final time we meet Nicodemus is in John 19. This is the aftermath of the brutal murder of Jesus. And the 12 disciples, these guys who spent three years with him, following him around, have gone. Jesus' body is just mangled and broken and it's been brought down from the cross. And it's Nicodemus who comes and kneels over the body and binds it and gives it a proper burial. That final time we meet Nicodemus, the man who met Jesus 
in the night. It's in a place of bold, transformed surrender. God doesn't just leave this one honest encounter where it is. He takes it on a whole journey. Some scholars think, um, because there's no record of a Nicodemus in the Jewish history books, interesting fact for you, Um, no record of him at all. Yet he's called the, the teacher of Israel. He's the big deal. It's quite clear in scripture that that's what it says. Yet he's not there. And lots of people, lots of scholars think that that's because he was erased. Because he just was completely sold out for Jesus. He had this honest encounter and it changes everything. And yeah, it was a bit gradual because he clearly went back to the Pharisees. Because he said he was with them when he stepped up for Jesus. But at the end of that journey, when everyone else is gone, when it's quite embarrassing to have been hanging out with this guy, Jesus, for three years, because now he's just been put on a cross and crucified, Nicodemus is there, and he's ready to anoint him and to try and bless Jesus and to try and serve him. I think that's incredible. So where are you in Nicodemus' story? Has religiousness become the substitute for belief? Are you so focused on holding your beliefs for the world to see that actual surrender, actual trust in Jesus, which is what he asks of us, has just faded into the backdrop? Maybe you just got tied down with that checklist of doing and saying the right things. On a Sunday you're all in, but when it comes to Monday, you're concerned that this believing stuff is a bit too much. For me, when I fall into this, I think, oh, well, it's fine, because I could still do a good, you know, I could lead a good cell discussion, but I'm actually really bored of believing. I actually don't want to trust God with this in this part of my life. But it's fine, because no one can tell. It's very easy to mimic. Maybe you're just putting off actually living all of this out because you just keep asking God for the small print. I think God wants to let us in on, on who he is and what he wants to do with our lives. But at the same time, sometimes we're like, hold on, hold on. And we just keep putting him off, waiting. How long are we going to do that for? How long are we just going to keep going, no, 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 I just need a little bit more detail. I just need a little bit more of the roadmap before I actually take one step on it. Maybe you just want that life enhancement instead of the transformation. Maybe like me, you want the results rather than having to pursue relationship day in, day out. It's like, a, it's like any other relationship. Every time you hang out isn't a Facebook-worthy mention. It's not like this amazing, yay, let's take a selfie. It's not like that in a relationship. You just you, you hang out, and sometimes you have times like that, and then you have this amazing buzz about it, but sometimes you don't. And I think relationship with God is incredible, but often it's like that. Sometimes it's just meeting with him, encountering him, being honest with him. And sometimes you've got the Facebook-worthy selfie moments, but most of the time you might not. But it's worth it because meeting Jesus is transformative. It can take us to a place where we're bold enough to say, I don't care if I'm in the history books. I don't care if I lose everything because you're so worth it. Jesus invites us wherever we are. Maybe if we are now over him, maybe if we are with him, maybe if we're right at the beginning we're just summoning up the courage to approach him for the first time in the night. He invites us to come and see him and to encounter him. And perhaps that's for the first time 
And maybe you just need to revisit him. And there's, there's no set formula or practical advice. I hate that. I love doing a bit of application saying, oh, well, the way you do this is by reading your Bible and praying. That isn't actually, I can't give you that. There's no set formula. It's just asking God to meet us where we are, in who we are, how we are, out in the open and in the daylight, sort of creeping about. That's enough. So Jesus, in this encounter, he goes on to say these amazing words that I told you about earlier. John 3.16, there are whole days dedicated to this in the calendar, something like that anyway, where people put it as their Facebook status and all of that. So this, these, these are big words. These are eternal. They're heavy. They're rich. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting, whole and lasting life. And those words weren't proclaimed on a Facebook status the first time they were said. They weren't said to a crowd. They weren't said on a mountaintop. These eternal, life-changing, born-again kind of words were said to one man in a dark corner in the middle of the night to this guy who thought he knew it all. And I believe that for each of us, wherever we are, we need to encounter Jesus and understand those words afresh, whether it's the first time or the billionth time. So I'm just going to pray for us now. And then we're going to go into worship and to respond and just to ask God to meet us where we are. I'd love it if, if for you there's something in this where you're, you feel like there's you just need to take that step. You need to stop putting it off. You need to stop asking those questions. If you just want to receive and meet God, wherever you are, to just hold out your hands like I'm going to do now. We're all going to close our eyes, so it doesn't matter. Don't worry, no one's looking. Father God, I thank you that you want to encounter us. I thank you that honest encounter with you, out in the open where we're exposed, is the best place to be. I thank you that you didn't come to condemn us, but you came to save us and to give us whole and lasting life. I thank you, Father, that, um, that you show us, you reveal um, who you are to us, bit by bit, step by step. Father, you are awesome. Thank you for sending your son to us. And we just ask now that you would, that you would encounter us here, wherever we are, whether we just heard this talk and thought, not for me. Whether we heard it and something hit us square in the chest. Father, we just want to be open to you. We want to be exposed to you. We don't want to live in, in that boxed-in way. We don't want to box you in because you are mighty, because you are our creator, because you are our Father. So we just receive you now. We pray that you would continue to transform us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.